Bloodstream Media is more than just a rare disease podcast network. With shows on chronic pain, menstrual health, and Dungeons and Dragons, yes, Dungeons and Dragons, Bloodstream Media's got a little something for everyone. Visit bloodstreammedia.com or find Bloodstream Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram to learn more. Hello and welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the hemophilia, von Willebrand disease, and greater bleeding disorders community. Brought to you by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. I am your patient advocate and host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am your healthcare advocate, nonprofit nerd, and other host, Amy Board, reminding you to speak to a healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. On today's show, Amy and I follow up on a story that we first shared know, months ago as we discussed the Supreme Court's recent ruling on California v. Texas, a case that represented the third major Supreme Court-level challenge to the Affordable Care Act, specifically challenging the constitutionality and inseverability of the individual mandate. We'll get into that in a bit. We'll also discuss a recent article published in the international peer-reviewed Journal of Hemophilia Practice on the role of shared decision-making in hemophilia as well as an article published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine, we got journals left and right this week, titled Emerging Immunogenicity and Genotoxicity Considerations of Adeno-Associated Virus Vector Gene Therapy for Hemophilia. Good Lord, that's a mouthful. I'm not gonna lie, I'm super psyched that you wrote this script that you got to say that and I didn't get to say any of that. I am psyched about it. I don't even know what any of it means. Anyway, it's going to be great. I'm psyched that that's the title they landed on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good times. Good times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, imagine the ones that they threw out. But we will break it down in normal English speak just a little bit later in the show. Thank you all for listening. Please subscribe and share the Bloodstream podcast with friends, families, colleagues, people that you just met. You'll find us on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud. You can also now stream full episodes directly from the Bloodstream Media Facebook page. And listeners, I'd like to remind you that the Bloodstream Podcast is made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Yes, that's right. Takeda, they got this website, bleedingdisorders.com, where you can learn all about Takeda's resources for and commitment to the bleeding disorders community. Takeda believes in a world free of bleeds, and they are dedicated more than ever in their efforts to offer a wide range of programs and support to help patients throughout their treatment journey, wherever on that journey they may be. You can learn more by simply visiting bleedingdisorders.com. One more time, that's bleedingdisorders.com. And for their founding and ongoing support of the Bloodstream Podcast, I would just like to say thanks, Takeda. Amy, it's good to see you. It's good to speak with you. It's been a minute. Sometimes I feel like we kind of got to, you know, play that up a little bit for the podcast. We were actually just chit-chatting and we're like, hey, it's nice to see you, but we actually haven't talked in weeks. So hi. I know. How are you? You're in a whole nother state. Like usually, you know, we've been distanced now for like over a year, but you've been in the same state. Now you are in a completely different state. You've been in multiple states. I'll be honest. I don't even know what state you're in yes. right now, which is cool. It's fine. I am in the state of Connecticut right now. I like That's not what I had on my bingo card. I did not. That's not what I would have guessed. <laughs> well, I so... Um, I'll tell you something. When I was telling people or a couple at this wedding about the trip that we're now on, so Natalie, Vivian, and I are on this uh, East Coast tour. We've got family in Ohio and family in New York and dear loved ones in Jersey and Connecticut and Massachusetts. So we, uh, long story short, we have this crazy, ridiculous trip that we're on right now. And I was telling somebody about it at this wedding. They were like, that sounds like a band on tour. Like, you need band shirts. And I was like, well, that's kind of interesting. So you mentioned bingo card, and I know this isn't one of our video episodes, but Amy Board, I'm oh going to hold up for you right now. Oh, my God. Yes, indeed. Maybe we can get a screenshot mm. of this, Greg, and we can share that. But here we go. It's the Lynch Family East Coast Tour 2021 on the front. This shirt is very comfortable, by the way. Map of the United States. And then on the back, you can see all the different locations and dates, but they are subject to change mm. without notice or refund. So... There is that piece. Where did you get that so quickly? I spent five hours of my work day a few weeks ago designing these and looking for the right fabric and <laughs> just was like, okay, that's a good idea, but we leave in three days. So I did it like that and I had it shipped to us on the trip. Um, so this is what we hand out when we go to each of these destinations. Oh my God. Yeah. So it's uh, it's a thing. Oh my God. 
That is so great. That makes my day. And I'm so glad that Vivian is getting a chance to a get like her travel legs, you know, little bitty travel mm-hmm. legs and everyone gets to meet her. I know. It's really sweet. Um I will admit that um she has been dealing with a a cough and a little bit of a sickness now for like a week and it hasn't gotten worse, but it hasn't really gotten better. So actually after we wrap up today, we have to go to a nearby urgent care to get her checked out and just make sure that everything is all right. So that's been a little bit of a, you know, uh, a rain cloud. Actually, no, that's not been a rain cloud. You know, it was a rain cloud, rain clouds. Amy, it rained for eight straight days between Ohio and New York on this trip. And not like a sprinkle, like pouring. And then when it wasn't pouring, it was just humid as can be. But one of the days we got stuck in this like total whiteout. It was the second worst driving conditions I've ever had to drive in and had Natalie and Vivian in the car, in a rental car. And I was just commenting on like, these windshield wipers are not the best. Before we are in like a real rainstorm, we really should take a look at these. Five minutes later, I couldn't see more than like six feet in front of me and the red lights from the car just in front of me on this highway. It was a little intense. So actually, that's the rain cloud to speak of. And reminder that I'm not really a fan of the East Coast, I have to admit. I just, uh, I'm not, I don't like that. I don't like the snow in the winter and the biting cold. I don't like the gross humidity. I don't like the horrific downpours. I, I'm, I'm like, East Coast, you have got to throw me a couple of bones here. Like, life in Southern California is yeah. pretty good. So I need help. I need help. Yeah. And I, 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 Amy, I'm not getting the help I need over here. <laughs> Rob always says that living in LA, like living in Southern California makes you a total wuss because all of a sudden you can't handle weather anymore. You're like, oh, wait, weather swings? It's it, yeah, no. There's like a wind with a bite with a chill in the air. And it's just, nah. you know, you're just... <laughs> not, not into it not into it at all so but I, at yeah. least on july 4th yeah. we, we we did have a beautiful july 4th and got to watch some nice fireworks from the my brother-in-law and his uh, fiance's building in new york and had a great july 4th experience with vivian so i i'm grateful for that but man leading up to it it was just like never ending rain but how was your fourth we haven't talked about that at all what did you guys do um, our for we were recovering. I did. I traveled for the first time for for work stuff. We did. Uh, I did a full. Oh, week that's right. Of How was that? We haven't talked about that either. I know. Um, you know, with Believe Limited, one of the things in my job is, and we all do this. Um, but I had a video series that <laughs> we've been trying to uh, get done through this pandemic, and we were finally given the green light to go shoot patient stories, which is really wonderful. So we were in several cities and. Um, like I, I had to get my travel, you know, shoes back on. I, I was, it was funny. We were, we went to San Francisco. Yeah. The first trip was San Francisco. I live in Los Angeles. Uh, so, you know, it's like nice. a 45 minute flight. And we came back from San Francisco and it was like I had traveled internationally for at least <laughs> two months. I was exhausted. Like really? I it felt like I had been run over by a bus and people are like, where'd you go? And I'm like, San Francisco. So <laughs> I was so tired of the fourth. We didn't do anything. I made, I washed the sheets on the bed and that was like my task for the day. And then we ordered barbecue from a spot uh, near us. And we ordered one of those like barbecue things that they have in the pandemic where it's like they feed six to eight and there's two of us in our yeah, household. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so now very we, familiar. And we were like, this is the smartest thing we've ever done. And now we have barbecue all week. So we were like super proud of ourselves. We're like, this is, we, we really crushed this holiday. Well done. Yeah. You really set quite a bar for the rest of yep. us. I, I'll have to, okay, I'll have to keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I am dying to know. I, I have not gotten an update on anything much, but the squirrels. Did you did you see them on July Fourth? Do they celebrate? The, are they patriotic squirrels? What's going on with the squirrels? Um, there's been a lot of updates about the squirrels, and I'm hesitant to even bring it up because it's like it, it's now a full blown war. Like we're waging war on the squirrels oh, no. because we decided to put up this bird feeder that we don't want the squirrels to get in. And of course they want to get in. And we like this bird feeder because it's where the big birds come. Like the mockingbird comes there and the turtle doves come there. And we just think it looks cool. Like we really think it looks cool. So, uh, 
there's been many things like we, uh, we and you know, I, sh- I, I haven't done any of this, I should say. It's not my war, it's Rob's war. And Rob, uh-huh. my boyfriend, bless him, he's, he's very useful, but Patrick, you've actually dubbed him as this, and it's very true. He is a human Swiss army knife, and that is very true. But he's like one of those problem solvers that won't be able to sleep unless a problem is solved. Right. So like this squirrel thing has become like unworldly. And, you know, I don't think we have time for it to go like down the list of the things that we tried to get rid of the squirrels. But I'm just going to say this is where we ended up and it's working. (laughs) We've... We've uh, built like contraptions so the squirrels can't get out to this feeder. So we have this long, you know, metal rod that sticks out from the uh-huh. tree now with the feeder. And Rob put um, like beads on it going. so the squirrels would like, you know, shimmy around so they wouldn't be able to get on it. And they figured out how to do that. It took them like three days, but they figured it out. And then he like changed Smart. weight. He like did all the physics. So we went through that setup several times. And now he has rigged, I swear to God, he's rigged like an electrical fence up there. So when the squirrels like get down (laughs) on that little ledge, it zaps them. I swear to God, Patrick, it zaps them. Poor squirrels. And they just like, yes, also they're fine. Like they're (laughs) literally, they just, they, they, it. They have this like reaction. He also rigged it in a way where the birds don't get zapped, which I don't understand. I don't understand. Wow. The engineering well mechanics of it all. And we've had mm. we had baby squirrels that were the ones that started to, you know, they were cute in the beginning and then they started to get insane. They've moved off. We can really tell we're like we we think they were like absolutely not. F these people. Like we're out of here. And so we have like <laughs> we have an old one that has like a a grizzly like busted out eye. He still like comes around. He's very territorial. He's adorable. And then we have like one more that just like gives it a shot every now and then. But they're normal now. They eat the figs on the fig tree, which is what they're supposed to eat. They leave our birds okay. alone. Anyway, so Rob sits in his chair every morning and watches those squirrels. And he's just like, it's like a lord over his kingdom. Like, he's really happy about it. Wow. Well, you know, good for him. If if squirrels <laughs> and his relationship to squirrels can yeah. give him lord-like joy, I will not take that away from him. That's, that's great to hear. Um, I'm sorry the squirrels are having to get shocked, but I'm glad that it doesn't seem to be doing too much harm. And that it's actually leading them to the food they're supposed to eat. So it sounds like everybody's winning. 100%. It's it, everyone's winning. It's fine. No one's getting hurt. No one's hurt. But it it is um it's just a lot in our backyard. It's just a lot sometimes. It's cool. It's fine. Well, thanks for that update. <laughs> I was genuinely curious and that's good to know. Um there are a couple of quick pieces of housekeeping that I want to address before we get into our uh topics for today. The first is that we have a brand new Bloodstream Media website. Sound effect, sound effect, sound effect. So when we direct you to go to bloodstreammedia.com to check out all of our shows, you'll now notice a brand new website. Uh, I I think it looks great. If you notice anything on it that's not working or you think it would be better, you can let us know. We're always open to feedback. But check it out. It's really cool. Um, And while you're there... We have uh, NFL Super Bowl MVP Santonio Holmes on the most recent episode of Cheat Codes, talking about sickle cell and the trait, the importance of diagnoses, and a whole lot. He has a foundation, third and long, that's uh, dedicated to people affected by sickle cell disease. Uh, Sports writer Martenzi Johnson is also on the episode and has great insight. He did a wonderful piece on sickle cell in athletes uh, for an ESPN publication a few, I think a few years ago. I've shared it on my Twitter account. But anyway, two amazing guests. So if you haven't checked out Cheat Codes yet, this is the episode. Go check out the most recent episode of Cheat Codes with Santonio Holmes and Martenzi. Um, On episode 86 of Once Upon a Gene with our host, Effie Parks, she speaks with a fellow rare disease mom about why getting a diagnosis matters, speaking of diagnosis and the importance of that. Uh, Great conversation that she has. That's on episode 86 of Once Upon a Gene, which you can also find at bloodstreammedia.com. And Amy, on the most recent episode of Flow, anything in particular from that episode you want to highlight for listeners? Yeah, we've got an episode that actually came out yesterday. So this episode of Bloodstream is out on Friday, July 
9th, I believe. And so the um, 8th, the episode that came out yesterday is um, about endometriosis. It is a part one of a part two-er. We're doing endo twice Mm. um, because it is such a uh, (laughs) debilitating, debilitating, painful, and just a nebulous, um, you know, disorder for women. Um, Very painful. And so we have um, a couple guests, Mm. which is great. And uh, um, finding specialists actually that work in endo that are, um, you know, around, I think they're very sought after. And so getting somebody to um, speak to us on the podcast has been a bit of a hurdle, which I think is just indicative to, you know, hmm. the demand. And I just think the, um, you know, the the need for, you know, specialty care with when it comes to endo. So check out that episode of Flow. It's great. And uh, it's good awareness and education. Cool. Bloodstreammedia.com. You can also keep connected with Bloodstream Media, Amy or myself on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And as always, if you have a topic that you'd like to hear us speak about, if there is an expert that you would really love to hear from, or if you would like to inquire about any of our storytelling or casting opportunities, email us at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. So you can learn more about all of those shows, listen to all of those shows, obviously, on bloodstreammedia.com. And you can sign up for the Big Bloody Talent Show by clicking on the link bit.ly, B-I-T L-Y backslash all bloodstream stuff with a link in the program notes. All right, our first segment for the day, uh, the Supreme Court decides California v. Texas. California, I don't know what I was trying to say there. I'm from that state. I guess I've been away from it too long. I can't even pronounce it now. But that is our first topic. We'll get into it in just a moment. This this segment is brought to you today by Genentech, who is committed to supporting the Hemophilia A community through useful resources such as Hemophilia Clinical Education Managers, or CEMs. Genentech's team of CEMs are always available to answer any questions you may have. By visiting connectwithgenentech.com, you can connect with a clinical education manager in your area. Genentech's CEM team has years of experience as registered nurses. They can answer questions about treatment, provide support with insurance and financial assistance, and inform you about education programs in your area. Clinical education managers do not provide medical advice. And again, you can visit connectwithgenentech.com to learn more about the CEMs in your area. So, Uh, Last month, the Supreme Court decides California v. Texas. This was kind of a long time coming. We spoke about this many moons ago on Bloodstream. Uh, You may recall discussion about the uh, inseverability of the individual mandate. That was sort of the big linchpin piece was, could this thing be separated from the rest of the ACA? And therefore, if it can't, and it's deemed unconstitutional, that would take down the entire Affordable Care Act. So I read a really nice synopsis, Amy. Um, in jdsupra.com, this legal uh, information hub. So I'm going to read through that and then we can discuss. It does a really nice job providing a bit of an overview. I have lost track of this story across the last decade. So uh, we'll just go through this, just take a couple of minutes. So on June 17th, the U.S. Supreme Court decided California v. Texas, holding that states and individuals challenging the Affordable Care Act lack standing to claim that, quote, The individual mandate is unconstitutional after Congress repealed the penalty associated with it. The original Affordable Care Act, or ACA, enacted in 2010, required most Americans to obtain minimal essential health insurance coverage and imposed a monetary penalty on those who did not. In 2012, two years later, the Supreme Court held that this was a permissible exercise of Congress's power to tax. In 2017, however, five years after that, Congress amended the act by setting the amount of the penalty to zero. Thus, although the individual mandate remained in the statute, failure to comply with it no longer carried any legal consequence, and the IRS eliminated all requirements that individuals report about their health coverage. So, two individuals and several states led by Texas filed suit claiming that after this amendment, the individual mandate was no longer a tax and therefore was unconstitutional. The plaintiffs referred, the plaintiffs further claimed that the individual mandate was inseverable from the Affordable Care Act as a whole, and so the entire statute had to be struck down. Although the, this is so interesting to me, 
Although the United States was a defendant, it filed briefs agreeing with the plaintiff's position, and several other states led by California therefore intervened to defend the ACA. So even though the U.S. government was a defendant, at this time in 2017, it filed briefs agreeing with the plaintiff, so it was up to the states led by California to intervene. Hence, California v. Texas. We mentioned Texas was amongst the states who were filing suit. California was the largest state to defend, hence California v. Texas. The district court agreed with the plaintiffs, ruling that the individual mandate was unconstitutional and inseverable from the ACA as a whole. The Fifth Circuit vacated the severability ruling and directed more proceedings in the district court. But before that could happen, the Supreme Court granted review. So that's the last time we covered this was when the Fifth Circuit, they got rid of the severability piece and they directed more proceedings in the courts. And now, however, the Supreme Court granted review and intercedes. So on June 17th, the Supreme Court reversed by a seven to two vote, holding that the plaintiffs lacked standing because they had not, quote, shown that the injury they will suffer or have suffered is fairly traceable to the allegedly unlawful conduct of which they complain. Although the individual plaintiffs purchased health insurance to comply with the individual mandate, and the state plaintiffs alleged that the individual mandate drove people into their public insurance programs, the court noted that these injuries arose solely from the existence of the challenge statute, not from, quote, any kind of government action or conduct enforcing the statute. The court stated that judicial remedies operate with respect to specific parties and do not simply operate on legal rules in the abstract. Since the plaintiffs had not sought any remedy against Congress itself, and since there is no executive official who takes any action to enforce the amended individual mandate, the court concluded that the plaintiffs' injuries were not caused by any conduct that the courts can remedy. The court added that the state plaintiffs lacked standing for the additional reason that they, quote, have not demonstrated that an unenforceable mandate will cause their residents to enroll in valuable benefits programs that would that they would otherwise forego. Uh, just a couple of sentences left here. The court also concluded that the state plaintiffs could not establish standing to challenge the individual mandate by pointing to costs that they incurred in complying with other provisions of the ACA not related to the individual mandate. The court noted that invalidating the individual individual mandate, quote, would not show that enforcement of any of these other provisions violates the Constitution, end quote, and so held that the government's enforcement of other provisions, quote, is therefore not fairly traceable to enforcement of the individual mandate. Uh, worth noting, Justice Breyer is the one who delivered the opinion of the court, joined by Chief Justice Roberts, Justices Thomas, Sotomayor, Kagan, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. Justice Thomas also filed a concurring opinion while Justices Alito and Gorsuch filed a dissenting opinion. So the third and maybe final challenge of the ACA to reach the Supreme Court has been knocked down by a seven to two vote. Amy, what does all of this mean to you? Ugh, I don't know. I'm just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. Um, <laughs> Our this... next topic for today. <laughs> No, I think, you know, um, you know, members of the bleeding disorder community, uh, you know, are so well versed in this, um, have been so intimately involved in the advocacy towards the Affordable Care Act um, to protect the Affordable Care Act. And while this is, you know, th this is basically, uh, you know, arguing a very small piece of you know this very large bill um, in order to get the entire mm -hmm. bill you know wiped out. That's what that's truly what this is for for those with chronic illness. Um, we're very well versed knowing that while this fight specifically around the individual mandate is is what they chose to go after, um, we know that. Um, if the bill is wiped out, those consumer protections that were written into the bill through those essential health benefits, so they're not standalone pieces. Um, for for those of us in the in the hemophilia community, the biggest one are those are those insurance caps. You know, a, a cap of how much money you can yeah. spend on your insurance plan before you are kicked out. Which you know, back in the day, I mean, that was. 
um, it, 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 you know, it, it was trauma for so many families. Um, those protections are written into the essential health benefits. Basically, that mandate stands for, you know, you have to have th- those plans must have these essential health benefits. And so if that was right. taken away, um, you know, consumer protections like that would be at risk. They'd be very vulnerable. And, you know, who knows what would happen? I mean, it, it, they truly would be gone and it would be up to the insurance industry, you know, to kind of decide what they wanted to do. So um, from our standpoint, from an advocate chronic disease standpoint, this is wonderful news and um, very important. It's, you know, tedious, you know, I mean, it's like it's tedious stuff that you can understand or not. But basically, um, it's wonderful news for those with um, chronic rare diseases. NHF CEO and President Dr. Len Valentino is quoted as saying, thankfully, this decision didn't undermine or repeal the overall ACA law, which would have dragged the inheritable blood disorders community back into a broken system. Uh, There was also something published from HFA about 34 patient groups who responded to this, as they frame it, important win, um, but also noting that there's critical work remaining. So uh, I'll just read a portion of that statement. Patients now know with certainty, as you said, Amy, the critical protections they rely upon are here to stay. Today's ruling, however, does not mean our work is over. While recent enhancements to the Affordable Care Act, including temporarily expanded premium subsidies and increased navigator funding, represent tremendous strides forward for patients, we believe lawmakers and the administration must commit to doing even more to ensure our country's health. And uh, as I said, there's 34 patient organizations, HFA, NHF, uh, March of Dimes, American Liver, uh, United Way, NORD, the Cystic Fibrosis Association, the Immune Deficiency Foundation, Susan G. Komen, a lot, the AIDS Institute, National Multiple Sclerosis Society, the NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. So that there's a huge number of patients represented by these 34 patient groups who came out very clearly saying this is good, but it doesn't mean that the work is over. And and I appreciate that both points were made, that this is an important victory, but at the same time, there's more work to be done. So this did come out a few weeks ago. This was June 17th was when this ruling came out, uh, but we haven't had an opportunity to talk about it here. And it's really critical. And this isn't the end. There is more work to be done. And there will probably be additional challenges to pieces of the Affordable Care Act, because that's just how it goes. But this is where we stand right now. The protections are, the the critical protections are here to stay and there is more work to be done. So stay tuned for more as of course there will be more. And now let's transition to topic number two of the day. Amy, this is something that we were emailing about. We both saw this and we're like, yeah, this is definitely a bloodstream podcast topic. There was a paper published, as I mentioned in the intro, in the Journal of Hemophilia Practice uh, that advances the concept of shared decision making between the hemophilia patient and healthcare provider. Uh, NHF released uh, a piece of news on this article. I'm going to read, Amy, from NHF's kind of synopsis with some additional quotes and give you and I a chance to discuss this because it's it's an interesting topic and I think there's a lot to discuss. So I'll, I'll read this down and we'll talk about it as it goes. So as a relatively new approach to care, uh, the shared decision making or SDM, it's got an acronym now. That's when you know you've really made it in the medical world when your thing is an acronym. So <laughs> SDM, shared decision making sheds the one-size-fits-all method associated with a more paternalistic model whereby patients and caregivers, the latter when the patient is a child or otherwise not able to make decisions, function in a mostly passive role, deferring to their providers on decisions about their care. Instead, SDM embraces the patient-as-partner style, which cultivates a truly reciprocal relationship. This approach draws on both a patient's lived experience and knowledge and a healthcare provider's clinical expertise. It it eschews what the authors describe as a, quote, transactional interaction for a more equitable and collegial healthcare provider-patient dynamic in which both parties arrive at at an informed decision only after open to a discussions about patient goals, values, and desires. Let me pause right there. So far, that makes a lot of sense to me. Makes sense to you? Yes. Play button. While certain situations, such as medical emergency scenarios, may compel a healthcare provider to make an immediate autonomous decision, there are several instances that represent excellent opportunities to initiate SDM. 
These include a new diagnosis, a non-threatening condition, and ongoing care for a chronic condition like hemophilia. So this is where it kind of gets interesting. They start to break down what they more specifically mean by a shared decision-making model. Integral to this process is a stepwise approach that starts with a planning phase initiated after the patient or caregiver is presented with a new therapeutic or management option or some other change in care that necessitates decisions. Here is where the new dynamic is established in which the patient or caregiver is introduced to the concept of choice and to the idea of being equal partners in their care. So Amy, phase one, just establishing what the choices are and kind of getting on that equitable playing ground with the healthcare provider. Makes sense to me? Makes sense to you? Absolutely. The next phase is where the healthcare provider engages the patient or caregiver about their values, preferences, and treatment goals. They are also presented with all the relevant management options, including risks, benefits, and potential alternatives. Healthcare providers are encouraged to provide additional information and resources during this period to help inform the process. Amy, I'll do a little peek ahead. The next step is the quote decision point, which means that this phase in, in this SDM model being presented, this second phase is really where the rubber meets the road. It's where all the information is intended to be shared, including the patient's values, preferences, and treatment goals. I wanna just quibble a little bit with the use of the word preference. And it might just be my own uh, what have you, but I hear that word and I hear, I hear something that sounds optional or not, you know, not non-critical. A preference doesn't sound critical, but I don't think that's what we're actually suggesting because if a human being has a quote preference or would like to make a quote lifestyle choice to be able to walk from their home to the bank a half a mile away without having to worry about breakthrough bleeding, then I don't really think it's fair to put that under the uh, umbrella of uh, a preference that we could deem optional. That to me sounds like a, a lifestyle choice or preference that is as valid a reason to make a decision about treatment as any other reason, the administration of the specific medication, the amount of time it lasts in the body. That to me does not sound optional, but when I hear preference or when I hear lifestyle, I think optional. I don't know, is that just me? No, I think um, it's an interesting word that they used, I think. Um, I mean, I, I have thoughts about what all this is about. So let's let's keep going. And then we can I've, I've got like I'm like sitting on thoughts. <laughs> You're chomping on. OK, so you know what? Let me kind of get through this a bit more. So the third step, as I just kind of previewed, that's their decision point where the treatment choice is arrived at only after the healthcare provider assures the patient caregiver that there will be an opportunity to review the new treatment plan before it begins and that modifying or even withdrawing from that plan will always be an option. Interestingly, they mention in this NHF synopsis that there are several established SDM models. We know how important uh, precedent can be in, in the medical world. Um, there's one model called SHARE. They break it down here. I, I, we don't have to get into it, but just good to know there are existing models. And if you want to look into that, you can. The last kind of big point that I want to um, highlight here is this idea of overt and unconscious bias. And the, the, the position here is that by taking going through this process, you also help to reduce or eliminate both the overt process, uh, overt bias, let's say if a healthcare provider just has way more information about one particular treatment, and so they have a very clear bias toward that treatment. Well, in a world where we are obligating shared decision-making and sharing of all potential options, it does help to thwart that overt bias. And then unconscious bias, which by its very nature, as the article here suggests, is inherently more difficult to exclude or reduce because it's unconscious. Again, this kind of shared decision-making allows all sorts of conversation to rise to the surface. They point out that patient characteristics, including those of minority groups, should be given due consideration when employing the shared decision-making model to develop new treatment plans. So these considerations include race, ethnicity, culture, education, and knowledge base, plus potential patient biases that can inform decisions regarding care. Assumptions based on stereotypes, which may surface during this process, should be avoided. So to repeat, the, the idea being that this SDM process allows unconscious bias to also, if not be eliminated, at least come way down as a factor in the decision-making uh, process. The remainder of the article in large part talks about how hemophilia is at a particularly interesting 
moment in time to consider shared decision-making models because of the ever-changing treatment landscape, the new mechanisms of action, the known unknowns. They get into some more about gene therapy and RNA therapies and, and specifics that we don't need to get into here. So I'll kind of, I'll pause it there. Um, shared decision-making, it's not, you know, they mentioned at the top of this that it's, it's a, a relatively new approach to care. And I suppose maybe from a, you know, a 10,000 foot view it is. Amy, I feel like I've been hearing about shared decision-making since I was 11. So, you know, it doesn't sound new to me, but you mentioned that there's a number of things that kind of come to the surface for you uh, hearing about all this. So take it away. What, what is this all, what's resonating with you? Well, I think, um, I think it is absolutely a model that should be happening in physicians' offices, not just with hemophilia von Willebrand's disease, bleeding disorders, not just with chronic illness, with any, you know, patient-physician relationship. Um, we live in a country where we have the access to information and education at our fingertips um, in terms of what we could ask for. And I think so many of us, um, myself included, um, freeze up almost when we're in a, a doctor's office and just take whatever's, you know, uh, prescribed to us for a, a myriad of things. So I just want to state for the record sure. that I think it's a it's encouraging that, you know, scientifically they're writing papers on this because the scientific clinical community <laughs> only tends to do things, rally around certain things under, you know, published literature. So the fact that we have this, you know, paper and we can kind of go through like who was involved right. in this paper, but that's like that's, that's a good sign. I think for the hemophilia community, I agree with you. I think this has been a practice that has just been very organic and natural um, in terms of how you have related with physicians. I've always, this is silly, but I've been very jealous of the relationship that um, folks who have hemophilia von Willebrand's disease, the, the potential and the opportunity that they have with their physicians to actually build a relationship over time. It's very rare. It's, it's, it's a very rare thing. And the paper is really right with this, you know, we're on, we have already entered it, but this paradigm shift in terms of treatment for hemophilia, it really is. And I mean, NHF it has really pushed this every single physician that we have talked to in the past year about the myriad of new treatments, the research that's happening right now. It is, it is, we are entering the space and I'm getting goosebumps about it. This sounds really ridiculous. And I'm not as confident there's gonna be a quote unquote cure anytime soon. I am confident, extremely confident mm. that there's going to be a choice to fit your lifestyle. And so putting words to what you want out of your life, putting words to what you want physically from your body and your um, your personal bleeding out of life is something that you're gonna be able to choose and really, you can do whatever you want. However, this paper, and you know, looking at the names on this paper, it's like, y'all are super smart. The reason this paper was written, it was researched and written, is so we can get whatever choice that you want for your lifestyle paid for through your insurance company. This is for payers. This is to you know add to the argument to say this will extend this, this person's lifestyle. This is what they want for best of quality of life. And this is going to be you know the most cost effective a way to move forward you know with this particular patient. And we want patients, NHF has always held this, this is their stance. They want patients to have the right to choose what works best for their body. And so that's what this paper means to me. I think it's fantastic. I think it's, um, you know, it's having a conversation with your doctor. You know, we are so educated in the hemophilia community about, you know, what's happening. And I know some of it, some of the language, you know, seems to go over heads, like it goes over my head a lot, but to have like just a, a wealth of knowledge, just some bullet points to bring into your comprehensive care visit is just golden. And so for me, what really like ding, 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 ding about this article was that, you know, uh, it's official, you know, writing, writing a paper, having a paper being published about this will right. only make it more official. And I bet other chronic illness communities will um, get on the train. I co-sign everything that you said. And I think for me as a patient, the uh, another thing that this does is remind me to be really thoughtful about my clinic visits and what I ask for and what I bring up. You know, sometimes because I don't want to cause problems and I'm feeling good that day and 
I haven't done a good job of noting in the last six months when hemophilia has really caused me setbacks. I can show up to the clinic visit and I'm not presenting my goals, my lifestyle, my desires in the way that this is suggesting I ought to be. And I think in general, I'm doing a decent job of you know, communicating with my care providers about what my needs are and adjusting as such. But I do get kind of shy sometimes. And I also want to just sort of like keep things moving. So I don't necessarily share some stuff that actually is helpful for my, and, and I have to shout out, you know, Dr. Kwan is my hematologist as longtime listeners of the podcast know, because she's been on here a few times and we have a laugh about that. She's brilliant. And also she'll compel things out of me. She's a great listener. And she knows me, I think, now well enough that she knows that she sometimes has to like ask a second or third question, which is great. But, you know, Amy, to your point, that's that's really lucky and rare. You know, we don't all have these kind of care providers. So we have to be uh, taking the initiative to make sure that our goals and lifestyles, preferences, et cetera, as patients are um, a part of the shared decision making model or SDM. So. Um, this is great. As Amy said, it was written in part by some really, really fancy patients um, who will now have who have helped create precedent that will hopefully impact not just our community, but many, many others. And I just want to reiterate what our very own Christy Van Horn from the Flow podcast, public health advocate, bleeding disorder um, educator, has said many times as she has you know developed an entire curriculum about how to talk to your doctor one of the first things and the simplest things you can do before you go in there is write down what you want to say or ask just write it down on a piece of paper write it down on that notes app um i'm going to do that the next time i go in to see my physician it might it's it seems dumb i'm not going to lie it seems very dumb but if you have something written and you can literally pull it up and say okay I would like to, you know, tell me the difference between drug one and drug two. That is a valid question. And if you have it written down, like, I think the doctor will be charmed because doctors like stuff that's written down. They do. It, and it also shows your seriousness yes. as well. It demonstrates that you are really thinking about this stuff ahead of the visit, which in theory shouldn't like actually mean anything. But you know, if a doctor sees that and they hear you ask a question, they're probably going to be all the more inclined to want to give you the best answer they can. So if you do, if you are curious to um, read the article in the Journal of Hemophilia Practice, we'll have a link to that in the program notes, as well as a link to the Supreme Court's decision and some of the links that, um, to pages that we mentioned while discussing California v. Texas. We'll also have a link for the next thing that we're going to talk about, our final topic on today's episode, which is this article that, as Amy pointed out, the title of which is quite a mouthful, Emerging Immunogenicity and Genotoxicity Considerations of Adeno-Associated Virus Vector Gene Therapy for Hemophilia. I feel like there's a couple articles that are missing in there. There's, there's, some, there's stuff missing. So yeah. I don't know. Journal of Clinical Medicine, JCM. Uh, why is that the title? But I guess we're not the audience. It's a clinical magazine. So... So that's why we look at the thing that was written by NHF. Um, but if you do want to read this whole article, we'll have a link to that in the program notes as well. There's really just three things. I'm not going to read parts of this the way I did the other two um, for time's sake, but also because I just don't think it's necessary. There are a few things, Amy, that I want to point out and, and get your response to as well. The first is kind of simple, but like, hey, defining stuff, like first understanding what a vector was, like just defining that word was really helpful for me. So immunogenicity, I don't know why I'm not trusting my ability to say that word today, and genotoxicity. I have heard both of these words mentioned. I know they're both like bad stuff that happens in the immune system or as a result of some, but I haven't actually known like what it means. So here's what it means. Immunogenicity denotes the ability of a foreign substance to trigger an immune response. Okay, foreign substance triggers immune response. Got it while genotoxicity refers to a substance's ability to damage genetic material. Mm. So the first, immunogenicity, the thing being in the body is producing an immune response. Genotoxicity, and I guess toxic is maybe a, a, a good word to hold on to in the middle there that helps to separate these two. The thing itself, that substance itself, is damaging genetic material once it's inside the body. So this review was looking at those two things as it relates to adeno-associated viral vectors, AAV, uh, and with regard to hemophilia. There's a lot of nuance to the stuff that's presented in this paper. 
And if you want to go through it, you can, and it's dense and, and <laughs> good luck to you. For me personally, given that all gene therapies are still in clinical trial, there's nothing commercially available right now. I don't, I don't have like great deep knowledge of the differences as suggested by the most recent data because there's new data coming out all the time. I do plan on updating myself around NHF next month because for one, that's also when a lot of stuff, new data is presented um, around that time. So, you know, Amy, maybe next month after NHF or in September, then I guess we can do a little kind of uh, recap on what's the state of investigational therapies. But I don't think it's necessary for us to get into today. However, if you are interested and want to know about the nuances of each vector and how they interact with a person's natural immunity, insights into the different responses we've seen in heme A versus heme B, blah, 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 click on the link and follow the follow the um, the link to the article and you can ingest it as best you can. The last thing that I want to point out, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this, is as the article was wrapping up, it says the following. The authors go on to lay out various approaches to circumventing possible unwanted effects of AAV gene therapy, that, uh, et cetera, that they also reaffirm the importance of long-term follow-up of trial participants to glean valuable insights on the therapy's overall impact for persons with hemophilia, also known as PWH. So on one hand, that's kind of like a boilerplate thing that you always will hear about uh, an investigational medicine or something that's brand new to the market. Uh, we need long-term follow-up data. We need, quote, real-world data. You'll hear that term used. And and I totally appreciate as a patient why that's important. I've In fact, I value it, which is why every time I hear that that's what we need with regard to gene therapy, it slows my interest in having gene therapy myself. Again, long-time listeners will have heard me go back and forth on this, which I'm, I'm probably a lot of people can relate to. But as I read this stuff, Amy, that that reinforces the need for us to like have some time go by so that some of these known unknowns can be informed by more patients. Because all of these trials, it's a small, we're a small population. There's only so many patients. There's only so much data, et cetera, et cetera. So like, I'm glad they keep saying this because it's obviously true, but if we need more long-term data to better understand immunogenicity and genotoxicity, now that I know what those words mean, that's going to keep me on the sidelines of gene therapy for a little while. Yeah, I, I, I hear that. And I, you know, as you were, you know, kind of speaking about this, I kept thinking about um, our good mutual friend, Michelle Kim, who runs the hemophilia um, organization in Southern California out here. And um, really lovely friend. And she happened to say something um, forever ago. It was on Facebook, classic. I mean, this was years ago. But one of the things that she wrote on Facebook was her, um, she extended grateful thanks to you know, the patients that have gone on clinical trial for anything. I mean, I, I think gene therapy obviously is a, um, is a, you know, very intense commitment, but just to take this opportunity that I realize that it's not for everyone and, and making that decision, um, in your life, you know, at where, where you want to be, where you see yourself in life is very valid and to own that. And the people that have chosen to do gene therapy, it is a sacrifice of your body and of your time. And we are so grateful for your service in order to further science for people down the road. And so we have talked to people here on the podcast. I have, you know, several friends that I know that are going through it and I know it's hard. I know it's been disappointing. I think it's been, um, it's been all of those things. And so just to take this moment to thank those men that have done this and that will continue to do this because you are right, we're going to we're going to need that data. And if you are listening to this podcast and considering it, you know, to not just think if you are in a position to not just think solely about your body and where you are um, to contribute to this, like what a what a wonderful thing. And if you aren't what a wonderful thing. Like we have that, we have that choice. And that goes back to what we were just talking about with shared decision-making is that we have yeah. that choice and it, there's no broad right or wrong. It depends on each patient's circumstances, quality of life, other therapies that have been tried. I think I would have a much different point of view of all of this if I still had 
uh, an uncontrollable and very uh, varying inhibitor that was wreaking havoc on my body. I'm in a very different position. So for me, it, 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 it would almost feel irresponsible to myself and my family to undertake the risk of getting on a gene therapy clinical trial because of how well I'm doing. But if it was, if the circumstance was different or like our friends that you're referencing who we've spoken to, for them, it's right. So it's, you know, it annoys me that like, we all have to take agency over our own lives. I'm annoyed by that, Amy. I wish someone would just tell me what to do, but it's just true. Like this stuff is unfortunately not one size fits all. That is why there are many different therapies, why we need to use shared decision-making models and we need to respect one another's choices. So anyway, um, did want to share that. If you, again, you want to look into the, the article on, on immunogenicity and genotoxicity, feel free. There is a link in the program notes. Thanks to Genentech for supporting this episode. Visit connectwithgenentech.com to connect with a community clinical education manager or CEM, gotta love the acronyms, near you. Uh, our next show is another live, Bloodstream Live. It returns to Facebook on Wednesday, July 28th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, and we'll go live via the Bloodstream podcast feed on Friday, July 30th. And with that, that is all for this episode. Thanks as always to our presenting sponsor, Takeda, bleedingdisorders.com for wherever on your journey you may be. Thank you to our segment sponsor, Genentech. Thank you to producer Greg, the Bloodstream team. Thank you listeners. And check out the program notes in your podcast player or on the brand new bloodstreammedia.com episode page where you'll find links and information related to the stories and segments featured on this episode. Have a bleeding disorders or healthcare topic you'd like to hear us discuss? Is there an expert or guest that you're just dying to hear from? Want to inquire about storytelling and casting opportunities for Bloodstream's podcast or Believe Limited's films? Wait, Believe Limited's films. And we do have them. We do have those opportunities. If you are interested, email us at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com or connect with us on social media. You'll find all of us on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. Patrick's on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn like every three and a half weeks. So if you send me a message, I'll get it like every three and a half weeks. Sometimes I'll get emails that you sent me a message on LinkedIn, but then I won't go to LinkedIn because I just refuse to do it. And then I will later. I'm your host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am that other host, Amy Board. And until next time, take self-care of yourself. Bye, everybody. <laughs>